of Romans or listen on as I read verses 23 or excuse me 22 through 25 Romans chapter 4 verses 22 through 25 where we conclude our study in Romans of the Old Testament saints although really uh, this passage has to do with us as we'll see This is what the Apostle Paul says, And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the way in which your word uh, so clearly speaks to us uh, as the heirs of a, of a great history. Uh, but at the same time, it speaks to us as, as people who are living in the today, the now. And, and we know that your word is also for us. It wasn't just for Abraham. It wasn't just for his natural descendants of Israel. It wasn't just for Paul and those in his day. But it's even for us. And we ask you, God, that we might listen to your word with the same uh, urgency and, and understanding that its relevance is just as much for us as it was for them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, in this great chapter, the Apostle Paul has been telling us about uh, salvation as it was found in the Old Testament, salvation which he described at the end of chapter 3, salvation which he contends was no different in the Old Testament. And uh, in, in describing this, especially in chapter 4, he has been highlighting the centrality of faith in its relation to the promise. Faith in its relation to the promise. Abraham believed the promise... And so his faith was accounted to him for righteousness. And that's what Paul just keeps saying in this chapter. And that's a quotation from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. six. And so what Paul is saying is what we find in other places, and that is that Abraham was, in essence, the pattern of what it is to have justifying or saving faith. He becomes, in Scripture, in one sense, though not actually true, the first believer I say not actually true because Adam and Enoch and so many others, Noah, believed before him, Lot. But according to the, the teaching of Scripture and the pattern that, uh, that Abraham occupies, uh, he is the first. He is the prototype. Not only that, but the first man to be justified. And it is in that sense that he's spoken of as our father. But we see at the same time recognizing that Abraham was not only the one to whom the promise was given, but through whom it would be realized that God was doing something at the greater, uh, something greater at the same time. He was, he was establishing through Abraham the pattern of salvation and modeling for us how we might be saved along him. And it is in that sense that he becomes our father. And we, by faith, like his, become his children. And it is in this way that the promise of a multitude given to Abraham is realized by faith. It is when we, along with Abraham, believe and so become his children. And because this is so, because faith occupied a central role in the life of Abraham and then we as his children... Paul wants us to see in this chapter what Abraham's faith consisted of. What does it mean to have faith, seeing that faith is the great thing? And and what in particular does Abraham's faith tell us about the answer to this question, seeing that he is the pattern, the prototype, the father? 
And this is what we saw last time. Namely, that faith involves a settled certainty with regard to God's word. That was true of Abraham. That is true of us as well. Remember my definition of faith. Faith is my certainty that God's word is true. But lest we forget that faith is not the focus of Romans, but merely the instrument by which the real focus comes into prominence or becomes ours, namely the gift of justification. Paul returns to this in verses 23 through 25 as though to say, I have only been telling you about Abraham and his faith in order to highlight for you how a man is justified. And so he says in verses 23 and following, it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed, uh, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe and so on. As though to say justification is not merely a gift for Abraham. Nor indeed was it merely a Jewish blessing. The promise was written not merely for his sake. As though he were the only believer in the promise and recipient of its blessing. But for our sakes as well. Provided we have a faith like his. And so the focus at the end of chapter 4 now turns to us. He is if you like. Applying the message to the church. He has been in chapter 4 preaching his sermon about salvation in the Old Testament. Lest we think that this way of salvation he was preaching was anything new. No it wasn't. But at the same time he is concerned to say. This is also for you. It was true for them. But it's also true for you. And you will never be saved like Abraham. Unless you see this for yourselves. And so the question here at the end of chapter 4 in essence becomes. What is the faith that will justify us? In other words, what is the promise that God makes to the church that we are called to believe? And in believing, our faith is counted to us as righteousness as it was for Abraham. What is it? What is the promise that for us becomes a matter of faith and on which our salvation depends? Well, again, remember here what faith is. Faith and what it does. Faith considers the promises of God. It deals with the promises of God, which is just another way of saying the word of God. And what is more, it deals with and it considers the actions of God, not just what he says, but what he does. Sometimes theologians call this word and deed, the words and deeds of God. That's what faith deals with. Not upon that which we deem to be probable or likely, but merely upon what God has said and what God has done. And upon this basis, faith forms a confidence with respect to God himself upon the basis of his words and deeds. I like how uh, Abraham, uh, excuse me, how Voss translates Genesis 15, 6. That's the verse that Paul keeps quoting. That Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, Gerhardus Voss, in his discussion of faith, and he was an Old Testament scholar, uh, translates the phrase actually, in the true sense, Abraham developed assurance in Jehovah, which is equivalent to Abraham believed in God. Abraham developed assurance in Jehovah, which is obviously stronger than he believed in God, but it really is the same thing. 
if we understand faith as it occurs in Genesis and faith as Paul is describing it in Romans chapter 4 as a settled certainty with respect to God's word and thus with respect to God himself. That is what faith is. It is our assurance in Jehovah having been confronted with his word. It accepts his word as true because of who he is. That's what Paul just said in Romans chapter 4. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. He formed an assurance in God's word based upon a knowledge of who God was. He considered not only the promise, but the God who promised. And on this basis, he came or developed an assurance in Jehovah. And so Paul says, because he had a faith like this, not the faith of the demons, which just says, oh, I know it's true. But which actually formed the basis of a personal trust in Jehovah. His faith was accounted to him as righteousness. Verse 22. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's what a real justifying faith is, beloved. That's the message of Paul. Oh, but Paul says, don't stop with him. My whole concern in stressing his faith was to illustrate how a man is justified. And do you realize, he says, the same will be true of you if only you believe. The same righteousness will be imputed to you if you have a faith like his. That's what he says in verses 23 and 24. That is to say, when you develop the same assurance in Jehovah, you will be justified as Abraham was. And so let us see at the same time how Paul defines justification here. Not just how he defines faith, but how he defines justification. He describes it once more as a matter of imputation. Three times he says it. It was accounted to him for righteousness, 22. It was imputed to him, verse 23. It shall be imputed to us who believe, verse 24. The same word, over and over and over again. Accounted, reckoned, just, or, or uh, accounted, reckoned, or imputed. It's always the same word in the same sense. Justification is a matter of imputation. And what is meant by that? Well, you find the word in uh, what is, in my view, the best definition of justification that has ever been penned, and that is the answer to the question, what is justification in our shorter catechism? And the answer is this. And you'll see they make it a matter of imputation. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. How do we get the righteousness of Christ? That's another way you could ask this question. And the answer is, when God imputes it to us, the moment we believe. You see, he accepts us as righteous in his sight, not because we actually are. That's the point of imputation. He justifies the ungodly. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. People who are actually sinful. If you think of our actual condition when we exercise faith in the promise, or Abraham's condition when he exercised faith in the promise, you will see that all are full of sin. All are ungodly, as Paul says. 
And yet the amazing thing is that the moment they exercise faith, God actually justifies them. He not only pardons our sins, but he accepts our persons as righteous in his sight. It is not just the giving of a, of a clean slate, but it is a writing to the ledger that all is well, all is righteous. It's not just the taking away of that which is negative, it is the giving of that which is positive. And that is only possible, you see, because of what Christ has done. That he has paid for our sins on the one hand, thus cancelling the debt, but that he has also achieved a perfect righteousness, which he did not need, by the way, only so that he might give it to us. And the way that he gives it to us as those who are ungodly is by imputation. It is the idea of a debt that was paid. But not only that, but a whole fortune was given in its place. He who knew no sin was made sin that we might in him might be made the righteousness of God. We who were ungodly. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. That isn't exactly what he says, but that's the sense. And that's the whole idea of imputation. He got the credit for my sin. I got the credit for his righteousness. He got the credit for my sin on the cross. I got the credit for his righteousness the moment he believed. Or the moment I believed, excuse me. Now if you ask the question, how on earth is that just in the economy of God? It's a question I've actually asked and we don't have time to consider it here. But read the book of Hebrews and consider the the whole idea of the priesthood. And there you will find your answer. This is a concept which takes us into the courtroom of God. But it's much broader even than a legal thought. It brings in the whole idea of the priesthood. And the sacrifices and so on. But now that God has done that. He's cancelled the debt. He has positively reckoned a righteousness to my account. Not a generic righteousness. But the righteousness of his own son. Achieved in his earthly life. Now that he does that. He now views us as those who are righteous though ungodly. He accepts our persons as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That is the only reason. That is the only way. But if we finish the answer to the question. What is justification? You will notice the last phrases. And received by faith alone. We see that this is true. Not indiscriminately of all mankind. Again another idea. Where the priesthood comes in. But that this act of imputation. Occurs. Only when we have faith, only when we exercise faith, if righteousness is a gift, which Paul says that it is, which God is offering to humanity, it can only be received when we believe. It cannot be achieved through human effort. It can only be received when we believe the promise. The gift of an imputed righteousness can only be received by faith. That's what the confession or the catechism says. And that is precisely what Paul is saying as he concludes Romans chapter 4. Provided that we are clear as to what faith is. He now tells us that when we exercise faith. That this righteousness will be imputed to us. Also we will be justified by faith. And the value once more of considering how Abraham was justified is that we might be justified along with him. And so we return now to the primary question which uh, I'm asking here with regard to the text. And that is, what is the faith which justifies? Which is another way of asking, what is the promise that God has made that we are called to believe and in believing are justified? 
And that is what Paul tells us. He not only tells us that when we believe like Abraham, we will be justified like Abraham, but he specifies precisely what it is we believe. He says, it shall, verse 24, it shall be imputed to us who believe, and, and the remainder of, these, uh, of, the, of this, uh, these two verses is the contents of faith. To us who believe in him. Now let's just stop there. Faith, true and saving, justifying faith begins with God. It is faith in God. The him who is spoken of here is God. And the point which we have seen last time and which I've been making this time is that true and saving faith forms or develops an assurance with respect to God. It is a belief in him. And it is here that we notice the personal element of trust and dependence that we saw last time. It accepts God's word is true because of who he is. To quote Voss again, faith, faith therefore begins with and ends in trust, rest in God. Now it is true, faith does more, but never less. It never does less than this. And so this is where we begin. But we do not stop there. We are not content solely with saying saving faith is faith in God. And this is what many do. Many imagine that some form of generic belief in God is enough to save. Their definition of saving faith is simply belief in God. Some generic deity. But this is a far cry from true and saving faith. According to the definition which is offered here. And throughout the New Testament. And what then does true faith believe with respect to God? You see, Paul is not just saying that it believes in God, but it clarifies what it is we believe about God. In informing this assurance and confidence in God himself, what is it that God has said and that God has done that has enabled us to form this assurance in him? What is it that we believe about God? Well, you see, if you go on with the, the verse... Paul says that we believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now that concludes what he says in verse 24, but he goes even beyond that in verse 25. For now, let us just look at the rest of what he says in verse 24 and realize he's saying so much here. You will be justified along with Abraham when you believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The first thing he tells us is that our belief in God has to do with the resurrection. He tells us that the focus of Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A focus which allows us to form an assurance with respect to Jehovah. It is beholding what God has done in raising his son that gives us this conviction and this faith. And when we see what God does there. We become strong in faith like Abraham. And so the resurrection is and always has been the focus of the Christian faith. And really, the Apostle Paul uh, tells us in another place, there could be no faith in the Christian sense apart from it. As he says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I won't read that here, but if you read verses 12 through 19, you notice that he's saying that, If there was no resurrection, in fact, if all we had was a faith 
in a crucified Savior, but no resurrection, then in fact our faith is vain. He says that. Faith itself is vain. It is worthless. It accomplishes nothing. And the confidence that we formed with regard to Jehovah turned out to be unfounded if Christ our Lord was not raised. And that is what Paul is saying here. Justifying faith today means that we believe in God as the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Notice another thing that it says with respect. We began with the resurrection, but we also notice at the same time the doctrine of the Trinity as involved in this faith. True faith embraces and considers the doctrine of the Trinity. It sees the various persons of the Trinity acting uh, together for our salvation. Seeing that it was, as Paul says, the Father who raised up his Son on the third day. Yes, but it also considers the Son who was raised by the Father and ascribes to him deity as well. Jesus our Lord. And it is the resurrection above all that makes this plain to me. It is there that we're able to see in an unmistakable way who Jesus really is. And the relation he sustains to the Father. That he is the Lord and the Son of God. This was, you may remember, as we read a little while ago, the leading assertion of uh, Paul's summary of the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Let me just read those two verses again. The gospel of God, verse 1. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Yes, Jesus is God's son and our Lord. And this was declared to us by the father in raising him from the dead. Here was God's unmistakable testimony concerning his son. Him bearing witness to his true identity and his true divine power. The son of God with power, God was saying. But also don't forget his humanity. For he was Jesus, the man who was born of David, who dwelt among us, lived and died. A true man like us. Oh, but until he was raised, it was almost too difficult to believe that this man could really be the son of God in human form. Could this really be God the son dwelling among us? And what, after all, does that even mean? But all is made clear in the resurrection when God raised him up on that Sunday morning. There, Jesus who lived and died and dwelt among us, is declared by the Father to be the Son of God with power. The very eternal Son of God, clothed with majesty and divine power, all while retaining his human form. For only a man can experience resurrection. God and man in one person, both our Lord and Savior, our brother and our friend. Now just stop there and ask yourself if you are able to believe that. Are you able, on the basis of this testimony, which has been the testimony of preachers from the first century and even the prophets before them, are you able to develop assurance in Jehovah on the basis of this word and this deed of God the Father and God the Son? Or do you find that the thing is just too improbable and too difficult to believe? Here is, as Paul says, the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, not only for the Jew, but for the Greek. Who can really believe 
this word of promise that the church is now called to believe. And indeed for many it is simply too difficult to believe. Even for most. They stagger at the word of promise. And rather than growing strong they become weak in unbelief. But for others. And even for us. We behold what God has done. And what he was declaring in the resurrection of his son. To us about his son. And on this basis we form assurance with respect to Jehovah. A saving assurance in Jehovah. That is to say God the Lord Yahweh. We not only see who God is. Both as father and son. But we behold him as our savior and God. While others perish in their sins. Refusing to believe this awesome display of divine power and love. As well as righteousness. But that isn't Paul, uh, that isn't all that Paul has to say here. He has described the contents of saving faith. The promise of God with which faith has to deal. But he really is interested to say even more than that. Faith in, as focused in the resurrection of Jesus Christ leads him to say this in verse 25. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And so you see, Paul is not content with the formula who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Especially since the doctrine of justification is in view, he wants to clarify what God was doing when he raised his son up from the dead. And what Jesus, God the Son, accomplished for us in dying and rising again. And what faith is able to perceive about him in his death and in his resurrection. Beholding. In those two events, or that one event, God's saving power in action, even for me. What is it that faith perceives in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That is what Paul defines for us here. And the first thing that I would note for you is the parallelism. I don't like to give grammar lessons from the pulpit, but from time to time they're helpful. Let me slightly adjust the translation here. We read, at least this is New King James who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. That is an adequate uh, definition, or uh, excuse me, translation. Uh, But I, I prefer this, a slight adjustment. Speaking of Christ, who was delivered over for our offenses and who was raised for our justification. It's the same idea, I just think it comes across a little stronger. Or you could translate it like this. Again, same idea who was delivered over on account of our offenses, and who was raised on account of our justification. In, in the Greek, uh, and I, I think even some English translations uh, confuse the, the, um, the prepositions so that you lose the parallelism. But in the Greek, the parallel formula is impossible to miss. The prepositional phrasing of dia plus the accusative is used in both, which, is, which comes through in the idea for our offenses and for our justification. Dia plus the accusative in Greek is a statement of purpose. Understanding that, we have uh, uh, very naturally the same force carried in both. Both are purpose statements. And so the sense is that the reason Jesus was delivered over to the cross or to death on the cross by the Father was our sins. 
And likewise, the reason that he was raised up from the dead by the Father was our justification. He was delivered over for our sins. He was raised for our justification. And so in this statement, and this parallelism, we find reason and purpose in both. We see what God was doing. We see what God was accomplishing. In other words, uh, since we are considering here and answering the question, what is the faith that justifies? We do not simply in believing place our faith and our trust in the fact that Christ both died and was raised. But faith goes beyond that. And it discovers the reason for both of these things. J. Gresham Machen calls that doctrine. It's just simply, you have a statement of the facts, and then as soon as you explain those facts, you formulated the doctrine. And that's what the church has been doing all along. Begin with the death of Jesus Christ. Why did he die? He died for our sins. The reason for his death on the cross was our sins. Not his, for he had none, but ours. There was, in fact, no other reason for his death. And faith is able to comprehend that. Here he was acting in his office as a priest, bearing our burdens, paying for our sins to the full. And through this, securing for us a full pardon of our sins. Really, if you were to, uh, if you, if you wanted to expand upon this thought, you would be brought once again to the book of Hebrews. Or perhaps just to that simple phrase which uh, he utters in chapter 3, verse twenty. 4 and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Here is the doctrine of the atonement. Delivered over for our sins. Crucified that we sinners might enjoy the gift of forgiveness. It's the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Summarizing the gospel, he states the fact and then he explains it. The history and the doctrine. I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. That is to say, in his death, atonement for our sins was in view and fully accomplished. And faith sees that. It sees God there dealing with our sins and putting them away and forgetting them. Both expiating our sin and propitiating his wrath. It looks upon a crucified Savior and it accepts this is true. And then it forms a confidence in God on this basis. Yes, my sins might really be forgiven for Christ has died, but faith doesn't stop there. Remember, it isn't enough to have the slate wiped clean. There is something positive that must be offered and added. And so on the other side of the death of Christ for our sins, he speaks of the purpose of Christ's resurrection. And the question which we have here is, what did Christ accomplish for us in his resurrection with respect to our justification? The answer is our justification, which we have already defined as an imputation of righteousness. And we must try to understand how this is so. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplish for us an imputation of righteousness? How does resurrection accomplish justification? 
And here I'm very indebted once again to Gerhardus Voss, at this time not biblical theology, but Pauline eschatology, and then Gaffin's book, Dr. Gaffin, Richard Gaffin, his book, Resurrection and Redemption, and he's just uh, amplifying Voss. Voss, in his book, points out that we are accustomed, not wrongly, uh, but perhaps with too much emphasis here, uh, upon the resurrection in terms of its transformative nature. That in the resurrection, Jesus Christ, as a weak servant, becomes glorified in his humanity. And that our resurrection will be patterned after that. Our weakness will give way to a heavenly form, though still bodily. Now that is certainly true, that is certainly the emphasis of scripture. And so, not to take away from that at all, but to add to it, to give the full import of resurrection, is also uh, the scriptural teaching We also need to recognize the declarative or the forensic or the justifying force of the resurrection. That the resurrection in the life of Jesus Christ signaled a change in his relation to God in human priestly form. For if at the cross he was subject, which is to say he was under the condemnation and wrath of God for our sins... The the resurrection signals in his life a glorious reversal. He is transferred at that moment from a position of condemnation and death to a position of justification and life. He was. Now wait a second, you say. Did I just say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was his justification? Yes, I did. But let us be clear that in his case, all we are saying is that in the resurrection, God was declaring the righteousness of his son. For that is all justification means, a declaration of righteousness. A righteousness he achieved by his perfect obedience. An obedience that he rendered unto the Father perfectly. And which was, Paul says, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now. God was saying, a perfect righteousness has been achieved. Not by Adam, not by you and me, not by anyone else, but by the very Son of God in human form. And God was declaring not only his acceptance, but his delight. The priestly offering of the Son of God of obedience on behalf of the sons of men. A perfect righteousness, which as I say has never before been achieved, but now, having been achieved, was capable of saving those who lacked this righteousness. And so Voss says, let me offer a quotation from him and then a quotation from Gaffin, Christ's resurrection was the de facto declaration of God in regard to his being just. In other words, resurrection had annulled the sentence of condemnation. Or Gaffin, going along the same lines and having just quoted Voss, as long as he remained in a state of death, the righteous character of his work, the efficacy of his obedience unto death, remained in question, in fact, was implicitly denied. Consequently, the eradication of death in his resurrection is nothing less than the removal of the verdict of condemnation and the effective affirmation of his righteousness. All of this... Uh, to the effect of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, if he remains dead, if he is not raised, what has he really accomplished? He remains under condemnation. He remains under death. And we along with him 
Oh, but do you see what God has done when he raised up his son? He has accepted his righteousness. He has declared it. And he is now offering it to you. Gaffin pushing it a step further, he says, in keeping with Paul's emphasis here, the end in view of Christ's resurrection was our justification. That is to say, he was declared righteous so that we in him might be declared righteous along with him. If in death sin was imputed to him, and he dealt with it there, being delivered over to death for our sins, the first part of the phrase, so in resurrection, what he accomplished for us was a righteousness that would justify us. He was raised by the Father for our justification. Justification, again, seen according to the Pauline definition as the reversal of the sentence of condemnation. There is for us who are in Christ Jesus, therefore, no condemnation. Why? Because in him, the sentence has been overturned. Now I realize that this is a somewhat technical discussion. There is no uh, discussion of Romans chapter 4 verse 25 that isn't. But I hope that you're able to see at the same time what a wonderful subject this is. Especially as the basis of forming a greater faith in his work. And what he accomplished at the cross and in being raised seeing what God was doing in the death of his son, and in raising him up, faith is able to do for us what it did for Abraham. It is able to form a settled assurance and conviction in Jehovah and his word. For if God says that I, by believing, will be justified freely by his grace, I may perhaps stagger at this word of promise. I may find it too difficult to believe at first. But when I consider his work here at Calvary and just after in the resurrection, I am able to see it now more clearly and I am able to accept it. Suddenly I can say, is anything too difficult for God, even for God in his holiness to forgive me, even me? And to accept my person as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to me and received by faith alone. Do you see that here at the cross and in the resurrection, which is and always has been the focus of apostolic preaching. Do you see how the central concerns of salvation becomes clear to faith? God has made it clear to me. He has declared it. He has demonstrated it. He has made his case. That's the language Paul has been using throughout. He's demonstrated his righteousness to a sinful and obstinate people who are ready to argue at every turn. But you see, God has really done it. And who is there left to object now? Can even Satan or my guilty conscience overturn what God has done? No, they cannot. And faith always has this in view. And this alone, what God has done for me at Calvary and in the resurrection. I believe, as a believer, in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And here on this basis, and on this rock I stand, and I am able to develop an assurance in Jehovah. And having done that, Paul says, by this faith, I am able to receive the gift of an imputed righteousness. Received by faith alone. And do you believe that? Amen. And let us come now to the table.